coming up on Conversations on Bionics on Pain. My passion was always toward patient care. I wanted a clinical technologies lab. I didn't really want to do basic research. Now, there's nothing wrong with basic research. Don't get me wrong. It's just that I wanted to focus on clinical translational science. Right. And the cool thing is you bring in a whole bunch of smart people. Everybody in my lab is smarter than me at what they do. No joke. Most of them are generally smarter than me, but so you bring a bunch of smart people together, you point them in the same direction and get out of their way and let them do their thing. And then you get brilliance. And I, that's why I think the center for bionic medicine is absolutely brilliant because it's got an array of different scientists and engineers, students, postdocs, whoever, but everybody's trying to do the same very general thing, which is translational medicine. Welcome to Conversations on Bionics and Pain. I'm Dr. Max Ortiz Catalan. I'm the director of the Center for Bionics and Pain Research, which is a multidisciplinary engineering and medical collaboration between Chalmers University of Technology, Salgonenska University Hospital, and the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. This podcast is about the development of medical and engineering technologies to restore human function and alleviate pain, but it's also about the people dedicating their lives to this development and their stories. In this episode, I interview Dr. Todd Kaiken, who is best known for the development of targeted muscle reinnervation (TMR), which is a surgical technique to rewire the nervous system. So motor signals that used to bring information to a missing limb can be rerouted to muscles that don't have a biomechanical function, but that can be used as biological amplifiers of neural commands to a missing limb. Say you lost your arm above the elbow, a transhumeral amputation. The biceps and tricep muscles don't have an elbow joint to actuate. So what surgeons can do is take advantage that some muscles, like the biceps and triceps, have more than one head. And these heads are innervated by different branches of the same nerve. So for instance, the musculocutaneous nerve innervates by two different branches, the short head and the long head of the biceps. So what they can do is identify the innervation branch of one of the heads, cut it, and then take the nerve that used to go to the missing limb and reconnect it in that place. So if you think about the medial nerve that allows you to control the thumb, the index finger, and the middle finger, you can use the information from that nerve to activate one head of the biceps. So when that nerve grows into that muscle and the patient thinks about moving some of those fingers, then that part of the muscle will contract, and then you can place an electrode on that muscle to extract that information and tell the prosthesis to execute that movement. And then when the patient is intending to do the movement that the biceps is meant to do, that will be the flexion of the elbow, the other head of the biceps will still contract due to the evolution of that movement, and another electrode can be placed in that other head. So then you have two signals, one that you can use for closing the hand, for instance, and the other one that you can use to rotate the wrist or flex the elbow. So in summary, TMR allows you to rewire the neuromuscular system so we can extract more information that can be used to control more functions in a prosthetic device. And to me and many others, the biggest contribution of Dr. Kaiken's work is bringing into the prosthetics field the use of surgical techniques to improve function. 
Historically, most of the prosthetic development has been focused around the prosthesis itself, the hardware, the motors, the actuation mechanisms. The introduction of TMR as a way to reconstruct the stump opened the door for other surgical techniques such as regenerative peripheral nerve interfaces, RPNIs developed at the University of Michigan, or the AMIS, the agonistic antagonistic electric interface developed at um, MIT and Harvard. So in the past decades, we've seen more of these surgical techniques that allow to rebuild the biology so it can better interface with electronics. So Dr. Todd Kaiken is the Emeritus Director at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago and an Emeritus Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Northwestern University, also in Chicago. He had the vision of creating a center where clinicians and engineers could work together and sit side by side and share a space, which is the model I have used to create the Center for Bionics and Pain Research in Sweden. I have the fortune of knowing Dr. Kaikinson several years ago. He was actually the opponent of my PhD defense, so that was a fun time. And we have continued talking from now and then since then. So now, without further ado, here's the conversation. You have an interesting background because you started as an engineer and then shifted to medicine and, and then end up working on bionics. Would you mind talking a little bit about how all that happened? Well, you know, life just has a flow and you go with it. I don't have any crystallizing moments that made me do anything. I always liked the engineering because I liked the hard sciences, but I liked the idea of being a doctor because I'm a people person. So I kind of kept both those in mind. And eventually I got into an MD PhD program where I could do both. And I was young and naive, and so I did it. I don't necessarily recommend it to folks because it's just too darn long. You know, it's seven years, the prime years of your life. I recommend people pick one, medicine or science, and pursue one. Now, if you think you might want to do both, go down the medicine path, become a doctor, and it's, you can always find ways of doing research. You can do a postdoc or something, but it shortens the path a long ways because that path was just too long. And why I picked it, I'm not sure. I think it, you know, it was somewhat accidental. I always had an interest in artificial limbs. And then when I got my MD PhD, I came to Northwestern. And one of the reasons I came here is it was a center of excellence for that. And then I met Dudley Childress, who was the king at the time in the field. And I became his student. And then I kept looking for a project. And my project ended up becoming my career, the idea of targeted muscle reinnervation. I found that right. as a one-liner in a suggested in a paper by Jerry Loeb and Andy Hoffer. And it made me think hard. I thought that was a cool idea. We could rewire people. Sounds like fun. That became my thesis, which made me do a more of a neurophysiology thesis than any hard engineering. I had fun building my equipment and lab, but other than that, it was animal experiments. I rewired rats, lots of rats. Since you graduated, you were always doing clinical practice and research. Both things were part of your professional career. Yes, and I love them both. Because I was a physician researcher, 
I was able to do both clinical practice and my research. And of course, you want those two things to be intimate. And so I was able to carve out the area of amputation as my clinical specialty. So I became one of the best known amputation doctors in the field. And I could focus on both the clinical, which I really loved. I loved my clinical practice and fed so well into my research, not only helping us get research subjects, but helping see what was worthwhile and what wasn't worthwhile down the road. As we, you know, later in my career, I started building more gizmos and my clinical practice is really what directed the gizmo building because you're building a gizmo for patients, not just because it's a cool gizmo. Too many times engineers build a cool gizmo they think will do something and they don't get around to talking to the client until the end. And by then it's too late. They've missed something and, and it doesn't work as well as it could. So having your client, your patients involved from the very start is important and, yeah. and also very fun. Was it your idea to create the Center for Bionic Medicine where you have engineers and physicians working side by side? Or was that the way the Rehab Institute of Chicago was set up from the beginning? Well, I built my lab, you know, and I wanted to call my lab ARC, Amputee Rehab Center. And one of my superiors said, Todd, that's just not sexy enough. You're doing all this bionics (laughs) and stuff. You got to have a better name. And then the name became Nicole Neural Engineering Center for Artificial Limbs, which to be honest is a stupid name because you don't do anything for the artificial limb. It's all for the amputee. And then later on, a wonderful woman named Cheryl Schur, who is our director of development, decided to create the Center for Bionic Medicine. She just did it and she was able to get a lot of philanthropic money for it. And so then we changed our name to CBM, which is the best name it's had so far, I think. In the old days, we were all kind of trying to stay away from the word bionic Mm because it was catchy from the TV shows and stuff. But once you got some money behind it, it was easy to embrace. (laughs) That's the truth. I visited your lab when I was a student um, several years ago, and uh, and I was quite amazed by by this concept where where you have the engineers and the clinical people sitting side by side. So it was one desk, an engineer, and the next desk was um, a clinician. And I think that's rather unique. Are there many places in the U.S. that have that set up? Well, we have a whole new hospital now called the Shirley Ryan laboratory. And the idea of the whole hospital is to be a research lab. And so what they've done is they've combined the clinical therapy space with the research space to mingle the therapists and the scientists, which is a great concept. There are some practical challenges, but that's okay. And it's to, to, to a degree, it's modeled off we did. I mean, the center of bionic medicine was basically Todd's lab. Todd's lab grew and it got these different names, but my passion was always toward patient care. I wanted a clinical technologies lab. I didn't really want to do basic research. Now, there's nothing wrong with basic research. Don't get me wrong. It's just that I wanted to focus on 
clinical translational science. Right. And the cool thing is you bring in a whole bunch of smart people. Everybody in my lab is smarter than me at what they do. No joke. Most of them are generally smarter than me, but so you bring a bunch of smart people together, you point them in the same direction and get out of their way and let them do their thing. And then you get brilliance. And I, that's why I think the Center for Bionic Medicine is absolutely brilliant because it's got an array of different scientists and engineers, students, postdocs, whoever. But everybody's trying to do of the same very general thing, which is translational medicine. So, you know, the engineers come in and they don't necessarily know much about working with patients, but they learn quickly and they develop a clinical heart. Whereas, you know, the therapists come in and work on projects, they already have a clinical heart and they're learning a bit about science. And the fact that we're, uh, we're a good team, everybody's nice and you can go and talk to whoever, it, it facilitates all the different projects and the different ideas. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, you hear often this idea of having engineers and clinicians working together. And it seems like there's something that everybody's looking after in the biomedical engineering field, but it's very difficult to accomplish because the engineers or or in a technical university, you have your own agenda. And in the medical university, you have your own agenda. And it's very hard to get those two objectives aligned unless it's done kind of within the same framework. So that's what I thought the setup that you had was quite uh, brilliant. And, and, you know, as you know, that's what I'm trying to model now in my new center for bionics and pain research, because it's really important to have the engineers developing something close to the clinicians and to the patients. So they develop the right thing. So a couple of things that I think help make it all pull together was you started to develop a common language. I mean, if I brought some engineers and they started talking about foyer transfers and you know, LDAs or SBQCs or whatever acronym you want. No one could understand them, including myself, because I don't do deep math anymore. And so you have to get people willing to talk on a human scale so that other people can follow them. And my team got good at that. You know, I mean, sometimes they needed to talk about mathematical algorithms and they could do that within their engineering unit. But if we're given a presentation of the whole lab, you got to make it so that the average middle school student can understand it. So I'm, I'm not a particularly brilliant scientist, and I'm definitely not a very good engineer anymore. I don't even do math. I have two skills, I think, that really helped my center come along. One, I'm good at hiring smart people, and I hired some very smart people and just pointed them in the same direction. And two, I'm pretty good at telling stories. And telling stories would enable people to understand our science. And it's really helpful when you get a grant. A grant is a story. You have to remember it's supposed to be a compelling, exciting story if you want to get the money. Right. And I'm, good, I'm good at storytelling and recognizing good talent. And those were probably my two biggest contributions. Every now and then I did have an idea. <laughs> some of them were good. Some of them were very bad. I can tell you both the good and the bad. And that's the hard part of leadership is knowing when to 
what's good, what's bad, and when you start a bad project, when to quit. Those are some of the challenges of leadership. I'm going to get back to that a little bit uh, later. And um, you've been very modest on your contributions, I will say. But what if we talk um, first about the, the good ideas? So you're better known for your work on targeted muscle renovation. You mentioned it before. Would you mind explaining it? Okay. So the idea is if you lose your arm, we'll say above the elbow, we can make a robotic arm with a motorized elbow, wrist, hand, and even fingers. But how in the heck do you tell it what to do? So the conventional way is you take the last pair of muscles you got. So let's say you lost your arm above the elbow. You still have your biceps and triceps. And every time you contract a muscle, it lets out a little electric signal called an EMG signal. So you've got two signals left. And you can use them to control that whole arm, although slowly and cumbersomely. So let's say it's in elbow mode. So you squeeze your triceps and the elbow bends. Squeeze your triceps, I'm sorry, biceps it bends, triceps it straightens. Okay, now you want to go use your hand, let's say. Well, you got to co-contract twice to get once to the wrist mode and then once to the hand mode. And now your biceps is closing your hand and your triceps is opening your hand. And so that's very slow and cumbersome, I think it's fair to say. So the idea of targeted muscle reinnervation is even though you've lost your arm, the control signals are, are still there in, in the major nerves. And there's four major nerves that go down your arm. And so what we did is we moved them. So if you don't have an arm, your pectoralis muscle ain't doing a whole lot. It's available. So we cut the nerve away from the pectoralis major and minor muscles. And my I say we, that's the grand we, my surgeons, surgical colleagues then move the nerves down and stuck them to different parts of the pectoralis muscle. So that when you think close your hand, a little spot right here would contract. If you think open your hand, a little spot over here would contract. I don't even know if you can, it does, well, a different spot. I'm, I'm talking to a screen where I can see things <laughs> and it's now on radio. So a different spot for each of those four um, nerves would contract. And you could see four separate regions on this man's chest squeezing. And we could put electrodes or antennas over each of those spots. And then he was able to control both his elbow and his hand at the same time. Right. And that was very exciting. That was like my 20 year goal. So we got it done. And then it was like, we want more. I mean, those nerves carry tons of information about wiggling your fingers, your thumb, your wrist. And so I have other colleagues who actually do do math and they said, let's, let's try some mathematic algorithms, see if we can sort it out better. And so we tried uh, something that supposedly a fairly simple algorithm called an LDA, linear discriminant analysis. And it's a lot like voice recognition. With voice recognition, you take just a little chunk of time and the computer tries to figure out what you're saying in that little chunk of time, and it keeps going along and interprets your speech. So in the same way, 
we would look at little segments of time for these different muscles and use the computer to try and figure out what the patient was trying to do. Now the patient would train the computer first by you know, doing certain movements. So the computer knew that this is what an elbow up was like, and that's what an elbow down was like. And this is a hand open, close, wrist, flex, extend, and rotate. So the computer learned the patient's signals and then the patient could use the computer to make them happen. And it was much more intuitive because it wasn't, nobody was having to do co-contracts and codes anymore. It was, it was one joint at a time, but it was seamless. If you were wanting to move your elbow, your elbow moved. If you then wanted to move your hand, your hand moved without any funky co-contractions or hidden switches. Right, becomes intuitive. Yeah, and it worked. That's the cool part. All this worked after almost 20 years of experiments in rats and computer modeling. It worked. Yeah, so you, you test the idea first in rats and did several experiments in animals and then in humans. Originally, was that to, um, or one of the justifications was to treat neuroma pain, I understand. At the time, no. At the time, okay. we were trying to get motor control. All right. And we had a few surprises along the way. So I did years of rat work just to see what happens if you take a great big nerve and put it on a little piece of muscle. And that was my PhD. That was good, more basic science, but it had a clinical goal down the road. And the important thing was because we were taking such big nerves and putting them on to small pieces of muscle where you'd taken its original nerve away and the muscle wanted to be reinnervated with these great big nerves, I was gaming the system. You had an extra big nerve with say 50 times as many nerve fibers as that piece of muscle needed to reinnervate well. Right. And that's what we showed off in the rat. And that's what makes the surgery so successful in right. humans. So you were effectively taking a muscle that had no biomechanical function because the joints were lost at the amputation and then cutting its native nerve or the nerve that was originally innervating it. And in that place, sticking uh, one of the major nerves that were cut because of the amputation that is considerably larger. And in that way, you secure that there will be enough fibers going through that little branch that was left and then innervating the muscle again. Yeah, and as Max is reminding me, you have to cut the nerve to a muscle first because if it's got its own nerve, it doesn't need to be reinnervated. It doesn't want any more nerves. Right. So you have right. to cut its own nerve so that it's like it's like killing your grass. If you kill your grass, you can get new grass seed to grow, but if your grass is doing good, it's really hard to change what kind of grass it is. Right. So you have to make fertile ground by denervating the muscle. So I guess the obvious question there will be, what happened with that nerve that you caught that was originally innervating the muscle? Well, we generally took it and kind of moved it out of the way so it wouldn't go back into the muscle. And it didn't do anything. It just sat there for the rest of the person's life. But it was a motor nerve. And so it didn't have as much sensation. And they didn't tend to give pain problems. Right. Because that will be the okay. worry that will generate a neuroma and then that will create some pain problem. Um, but because it, it was mostly motor, 
than Anne Smoller, then that that hasn't been a clinical problem at least. Not much. So th this surgery is, you know, you start you started doing it in, I believe the first papers came out in two uh, two thousand four. First surgery was in two thousand two. Two thousand two. Do you have any idea how many surgeries? Because now this uh, technique is done a little bit all over the world, isn't it? Yeah, there's two different kinds of the technique based on the pain issue, if you want to talk about that now or later. But the honest sure. answer is I have no idea. I have no registry. And it's actually even hard to get people to email me how many cases they've done. My guess is that there are hundreds of cases in the world. Only and only a smaller percentage of them are for improving arm function. Okay. A lot of them are for improving pain. So is the surgical technique different when you want to create motor signals than when you are treating neuromapping? Yes, it is. So if you're trying to create motor signals, you want a great big amplifier. Mm. And so you know, your biceps and your triceps are two pretty big muscles right on the surface. So they make good amplifiers. You don't want a muscle that's deep in your arm because it's hard to record the signal. So for arm control, surface muscles that are big. And usually it's a secondary surgery because when a person has an amputation, the first thing they're doing is saving the person's life. That's fair. And they're trying to just clean up the mess of the amputation and get it stabilized. And so once it's all healed up and you know there's no infection problems, et cetera, et cetera, that's usually you go back and do this TMR surgery with great big muscles. And we have, well, we have developed a kind of a standard pattern in Chicago for shoulder disarticulation using the PEC. Um, biceps and triceps using for above elbow amputees. And we've done some surgeries for below elbow amputees, trying to get more information out from in finger intrinsics. Mm. And to be honest, for control, that surgery is not, I mean, we get some information, but probably not enough to be worth doing the surgery. At, at the transradial level, below the elbow? Yeah. Okay. And then a number of colleagues have invented variants of it. Right. So there's a group in Michigan that will take a little piece of muscle and wrap it around the end of the nerve. Right. And that helps make the nerve happy. And they can then put electrodes in that muscle and get signals. And Oscar Abman in Vienna mm -hmm. has done some very innovative surgeries for people with, shall we say, bad residual limbs, where he's moved muscle and nerve around to make a better residual limb for controlling an artificial arm. Right. So if, and I think we, we've done one like that, where you had a patient, we had a patient who really just didn't have much muscle left in here in the forearm. Right. And so Dr. Dumanian took a muscle from his back and moved it onto his arm to make this uh, a muscle that could amplify our signals. The reconstruction. So what you were saying, the difference between TMR for motor control or prosthetic control and TMR for neuroma pain is that you will 
aim for bigger muscles when you're aiming for prosthetic control. But if but if it's for neuroma pain, you might use just whatever muscle. Any any little nerve you find. Right. So I'm gonna tell my story about pain control. Please. The whole idea of TMR was to control artificial limbs. And that was how I researched it and we applied it. But after a few years and about 20 patients, we were, you know, I would, I would often get comments from patients about how their phantom limb pain was better. And, you know, that's nice, but, you know, these are one-off patients telling you that their pain is better. And pain is a very hard thing to quantify and study. Right. And to be honest, I didn't take it serious enough. But after about 20, we heard this enough times, we had a resident do a case review on 18 patient, 18 neuromas in, I don't know, 15 patients. And it turns out all of those neuromas got better with TMR. And the reason we think it is, is because you take a, an unhappy nerve Every time a nerve is cut, it tries to grow out and grow into what it's supposed to. That's what its job is, is to grow out and reinnervate something. But if there's nothing to reinnervate, it forms a tangled ball of nerve fibers and scar tissue, which is sometimes very painful, very tender. And that's called a painful neuroma. So the hypothesis is by giving that nerve a little piece of muscle to grow into, you make it happy. You give the nerve fibers something to grow into, to diffuse out of it, and you make an angrier nerve happy, and you give it something to do. We're all a little better off when we got something to do. So, and we, you know, the retrospective study showed that all, almost every single neuroma was nearly cured with TMR. One guy had one that was better, but not yet good enough to wear his prosthesis. Mm -hmm. And we had two new neuromas, but they were both in nerves that we had not done surgery on. So that was pretty compelling evidence that TMR could help with not only neuroma pain, but we were getting the same kind of feedback on phantom pain. Right. So Dr. Damanian and I got, did a nice, big, well-controlled study with funding from the military. Dr. Demonian took the lead and, and recruited colleagues in Ohio and elsewhere. And what they would do is they recruit the patients who had to be willing to either get the normal or the TMR revision. And in the surgery, the surgeon would open an envelope to see which surgery he was going to do. We thought about having the surgeons do the surgery blind, but that didn't seem like a good idea. So we just kept the patients blind. <laughs> and the surgeons did whatever was in the envelope. So it was randomized. And the results were pretty compelling that if you got the TMR, it helped a lot. So we eventually had to terminate the trial by ethics because if you didn't get the TMR, you had more pain. And the other problem was the word was getting around and nobody wanted to be in the placebo or in the control group with normal surgery. So we, we had to stop the study short, but it's pretty convincing. And it's now kind of becoming a standard of care. When you do an amputation, you find the nerves and, and you don't need a great big muscle to put it on. You, you have the amputation, you find the nerve, and then you just look around for a little 
slip of, of nerve going into a piece of a muscle. For example, the biceps has two different nerves. A fairly good side nerve comes into it, but it breaks in several parts, one going distal, one going proximal, and one in about the middle. So if the amputation was down here and the surgeon found that distal one, he could just cut that nerve and put one of the extra nerves on that little piece of muscle, and that would help with the pain. Right. So it's it's a different style, a different thought process, process in surgery. Yeah. I think now there is, uh, you can say, uh, some evidence from TMR working for neuroma pain as well as uh, RPNIs, these regenerative peripheral nerve interfaces from uh, Paul Saderna in Michigan that you that you just mentioned. And this um, seem to be rather effective for neuroma pain. Uh, and something that I try to do when I'm talking about pain, as you know, we, I'm quite interested in phantom limb pain and, and pain after amputation is that uh, it seems like neuroma pain is taken care of by these surgical techniques because of the underlying mechanisms causing the pain that will be the excitation of nociceptive fibers that work out and they stay in the neuroma. And sometimes that's enough for, for phantom limb pain, but sometimes it's not. And, and then that is maybe more related to um, more central changes that, that happen, uh, more neuropathic related to pain. And then there are other alternatives to, to treat that. But what I like to point out to people is that they should be careful at diagnosing the kind of pain, because if, it's a, if, it, if the phantom limb pain is due to a neuroma, no cognitive therapy will help because that neuroma is still there. So the neuroma should be treated. And therefore, now we're trying to make the difference as much as we can between, say, neuroma pain and phantom limb pain and, and stomp pain, which might be, again, have a, have a different mechanism. So TM, TMR does help with phantom pain, too. I think it was, trying to remember the paper, I think it reduced its occurrence by about 40% or the intensity moving forward, reduced yeah. about 40%. That's a lot. Yeah, it's certainly an improvement, but I've also met a few patients in Europe and in, in North America that had the TMR, but still had problems with phantom limb pain, which I think is because their phantom limb pain was more central. I would agree. And for that, there will be other alternatives. Do you have an idea of the success rate of the TMR surgery? Well, for controlling prostheses, it's like 96% because okay. again, we're using these big nerves on little muscle. I can only think of two patients where one of their two transfers didn't work. We were doing a patient one time with above elbow amputation, and we were looking for his triceps nerve in the back to move it around, and we couldn't find a good nerve. We found this withered up thing that was the closest we could come to a triceps nerve, and we transferred it, and it didn't work. And what we realized is this patient had had probably had a brachial plexopathy when they lost their arm. So, and without having an arm, it's kind of hard to diagnose that right. the nerve is damaged. Right. So that was one nerve that didn't work. And one time we were transferring a nerve on a patient and we moved a muscle out to the side so we could use it as a amplifier. And as we moved it, we damaged the circulation so that muscle didn't do well. I know the nerve did okay because the sensation for that nerve 
was right where it was supposed to be, but we didn't get much in the way of motor signals. Yeah. And that's a, uh, that's a perfect. That's two, uh, out of, that's two out of a lot of patients and a lot of transfers. That's a nice link to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, the targeted sensory reinnervation when you aim for sensory rather than motor. Did that come out as a, as a happy side effect? Yeah, that was a surprise. Every now and then we get surprises. And I like the uh, saying that chance favors the prepared mind. So anyhow, with the first guy we rewired and we were working with his muscle signals. And one day, one of my prosthetists was wiping his skin with alcohol to put an, uh, an electrode or antenna on him. And he said, oh, that's cool. That's cold, but in my hand. And so we started poking around his chest. And he felt when we touched different parts of his chest, he felt different parts on his hand and arm. And they correlated very well to where we put those big fat nerves. So the median nerve is one of them, and it innervates mostly your thumb and first finger. And the ulnar nerve is another, and it innervates mostly your pinky. And we had very clear thumb versus pinky areas on his chest skin. But this was all by accident. And it probably worked because when we did the surgery, he, like, me and the rest of the guys our age had, you know, a little bit of fat under here. Um, and we wanted to get the skin close to the muscle for the best amplifier. So we essentially gave him a mastectomy and took away a bunch of fat. And in the process, we probably denervated a lot of his skin. So now you've got this huge mass of neurons, both motor and sensory, and there's more sensory neurons than there are motor growing through this man's muscle. And, and there were skin um, terminal organs that were letting out little chemicals that were saying, come, reinnervate me, please, reinnervate me. So all these little nerve fibers came up and reinnervated his chest skin. So we did a different patient. We did it on purpose with a different plan, and it, and it worked again. And it's been very repeatable that as long as you denervate the skin, you can get the sensation of the nerve you put on it. Right. I'm going to put a link to these papers on the podcast. And that was the Lancet paper, right? That came out mostly on sensory. There's a Lancet and there's a PNAS. The PNAS, yes. So, so now TMR, is it done or, or, or the targeting? Is it done both motor and sensory? Is, is it mostly done motor, it seems to me, or... Well, actually, it's done for both. I would say it's done more now for the prevent pain than right. it is for controlling prostheses. And there are hundreds of cases now because it's becoming a standard of care for surgeons to do it for pain. You know, and it's the first time we've changed surgery for amputees in many, many years. And so the idea of either helping patients with their pain or helping make a cool motorized arm work better are exciting. They're exciting to the surgeons too. And so I've had a lot of different places pick up the technique and run with it. It was a very fun part of my middle career after we had had our first set of subjects. It seemed that people felt better about doing the surgery if I was there 
and I'm not even a surgeon. So they would invite me out to give a talk one day. I'd give like, it'd be like, I'd give a grand rounds one day. And the next day we'd go into the OR and the surgeons would operate. And I would just stand behind them and offer a word or two of advice once in a while. And they even listened to me. That's what's really <laughs> cool. The surgeons actually listened to me most of the time. And it made them feel better. It got a program started so that they would, they were perfectly com- comfortable doing the next cases. And we, we got about 10 centers in the world going that way. And I had a you know nice time being the honor professor, usually getting taken out for dinner and given my talk and all that stuff. I feel like your major contribution was to bring the surgeons or surgical techniques to the treatment of amputations because a lot of the history of prosthetics was related to, say, the engineering, the hardware, the prosthetic device itself. And that was going on for a while. And then TMR came along. And then from there, RPNIs and then the AMIs from MIT. And now we are experimenting with new surgical techniques in, in my group as well. So then it was not only technologies developed on, on the outside, but also reconstruction from the inside. So changing the person to make them fit the technology better is the broadest scope of looking at my work, TMR. And we, we went on and invented another technique I was very excited about where, can you believe it? Some people are overweight. I have here about it. And they can have very thick thighs, which makes it hard to wear an above knee amputation socket. So we took a patient and we just did essentially cosmetic surgery. We did a medial thigh plasty and took about three pounds of fat off the inside of her thigh. And then aggressive liposuction, we took fat from all around her leg. A total of, uh, I think it was six pounds off of her thigh. And after the surgery, wrapped it up real tight and she did great. You know, it healed up nice. Um, took It takes a while for the surgery to kind of stabilize. But in the end, her operated leg was skinnier than her normal leg. And in fact, even when she wore her socket, it was still skinnier than the other leg. And I asked her, would you like us to put some padding on that to make them equal? And she goes, no, no, I like my skinny leg. And it also functioned better because it was a stiffer limb. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I think of a prosthetic socket as like being a stick in a bowl of jello. And you got and you're trying to control the stick through the bowl of jello. And if you can reduce the jello, you get a stiffer system and you can control it better. Right. And that one patient, she did great. She was able to improve all of the little functional measures we did. She could stand on just her prosthetic leg, which she liked to do and show off and made her happy. And it was a very good result. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a grant to do that as a study. Yeah, that's another way to do the human machine interfacing. And it's one part that doesn't receive more attention because it's maybe not as sexy as talking about neural control and sensor feedback and stuff like that. But in the literature, and if we look clinically, the attachment of the prosthesis is one of the major sources for problems for people with amputations. And Max and his team are working on a critical idea <laughs> of trying to mechanically attach a prosthesis to the residual limb. 
And Richard Brannemark is kind of like the leader of this entire field for the last, well, his family for 50 years, and he's been doing it for 30. And they're getting some good results, and we're now starting to see it used in the United States, which is exciting, and they've been doing it all over the world. And it's starting to gain popularity. The problem with the United States is it has to go through all this paperwork with the FDA that you really have to have a champion lead it through that. And that's not the fun part of science, let me tell you. But it's an important part when you're trying to translate technologies, uh, which is one of the reasons why I was very keen on having this center where now we're working directly with the clinicians, because then we can early on know what are the requirements and what's expected as evidence-based so the healthcare system can adapt it into the regular care. But of course, Sweden is slightly different when it comes to the healthcare system than the United States and, and many other countries. But it's very important work that Max and his colleagues are doing to make it easier to and more comfortable to wear a prosthesis. Thank you. So we've been talking about reconstructing the anatomy of the patient so you can have more signals for control. And then you did some work to improve the attachment of the device. And then you mentioned a little bit before the work on what's known in the field as my electric pattern recognition. So use on the side of the prosthetic, using algorithms to recognize the intention of movement and then tell the prosthesis what to do. And that was a lot of work done in your lab uh, for several years. And then there was a spin-off co-op that came out out of your lab. And as far as I understand it, they're doing very well. How do you see this relationship between academy and industry? It's great if you can have it. So, and they oftentimes start with personal relationships. So CBM has had a really strong relationship with Autobach in particular, but it started off with Hans Dietl, a guy about my age and I becoming friends and enjoying sharing a meal or a drink at all these conferences around the world we were both going to. And Hans and I would talk about different ideas. Um, coming from a industry, his, his viewpoint was often dif- different. And he goes, ah, nice idea, Todd, but you'll never sell it. And so he thought at first, he said, TMR, it's a cool idea. It'll take a couple decades before it goes anywhere, though. So it was interesting when it took off faster and Autobach decided they needed to have a TMR prosthesis, which they right. put on a fast track. But the cool thing about the pattern rec that, that started in my lab and a company called Cohap has refined is it, it works with almost any prosthesis. It takes in the signals from the patient, does its math, and then it can give any prosthesis the command it needs to do what it wants it to do. So we're, I'm very excited that that little company started because I had younger, more ambitious and active colleagues than me. So Blair Locke, you know, he was working in my lab for a number of years and he decided to be bold and went and started this company out of his apartment. And it's now grown to a company of 20 odd people and it's been making money. At first I said, I'll consider it a success if I get enough money out of this company to buy dinner. 
<laughs> and I did more than dinner. They've been doing well. And the important thing is they got the technology out there. And we, we kind of wanted it in a separate company because we might have been able to sell it to a big company and they would have used it as a competitive edge on their products, but then it would only work with one company's product. Right. It might not work with everybody's. And so we made our Blair evolved it to a product that worked with everybody's prostheses. Right. That's the brilliance of that yeah. company. Yeah, that technology, it's uh, great. And I I mean, I started, I think, my career with, with some work on that as well. And it looked very good. But then at some point, it seemed like there was not much commercial interest for it. And But you guys still decided to go ahead. And now it's doing great. And other companies are following those steps, which brings me to another question, which is how do you know when you're having a bad idea? Those are harder. Yeah. So... Just recently, I kind of terminated a project in my lab that I'd had going for 30 years. When I was a grad student, I had this clever idea for making a wheelchair that could you could operate in both the standing and the sitting position. And I would, my advisor gave me a little bit of money to buy a welder and some steel. And I made versions in my basement or my garage for years, depending on where I lived, whether I had a basement or garage. And I was making versions for a year, but I'm not the engineer and I'm not a very good welder. But, you know, I made a prototype that kind of worked. And then I had my lab and I had collaborated with a real engineer who we'd gotten a grant and he tried to make a better chair and he delivered it right before we had another grant due. And the chair he made really wasn't that good. So we put it into this this multi-project grant. And so we had a basic idea that I knew extremely well. And now I had a full team of great engineers and they whipped out a version that was a heck of a lot better than mine first time. And then the second version, and it was way too heavy. It was like a hundred pounds. And then the second version, they got it down to 50 pounds, which is a lot better, but still way too heavy. And we've been working with that chair for a long, long time and trying to find an industrial partner. And we've asked everybody in the wheelchair business and nobody wanted to buy it and take it up. And so finally, just in the last couple of months, it was like, you know what? We shouldn't be pouring more money down this hole since it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. We have a good prototype if anybody wants to see how it works, but we're pouring a lot of good money into an idea that will probably not be realized. So finally, after 30 years, you know, I stopped the project. Well, that's uh, very brave. Most people will continue after investing that much. It will be very hard to cut the losses and move on. It, it hurt. I mean, that was my baby. But when I was able to finally step back, and it was the money that made me step back because, you know, money is important for all of our projects. It made me step back and realize, you know, we're spending too much money on a project that's probably not going to go anywhere. And we have the freedom to reallocate it. And we have cooler ideas. So, oh, well, that was one that I took way too long to figure out. And then I had another idea that I got from a colleague um, if you put a couple of magnets in your two wrist bones, 
you should be able to figure out the angle of the wrist by just looking at the magnetic vector. And I thought that was a very clever idea. And so we did some modeling on it. And fortunately, it didn't take me too long to figure out that you'd have to put pretty damn big magnets in, in a bone in an area where it's pretty bony so that there's not soft tissue over it. So you had an inherent problem of needing the magnets near the surface, but magnets near the surface could cause problems with skin and everything else. And doing all that just to get rotation, which would be rotation's cool and be nice to have. And we can now get it with pattern rec, but it would be, it would be better if you had a physical way of doing it. Right. But it didn't take too long to realize that wasn't the way to go. And after doing some modeling, we quit that project. Those are the hard part. Yeah, letting go. Letting go can be hard. You don't want to become too attached to your ideas. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. But inherently, you need to be attached to your ideas because it's your personal energy that makes them go. Like TMR, I worked on it for 20 years before we got into a human. And then once we got into a human and showed it work, I basically went around to conferences proselytizing how good this thing was. Right. You know, and giving my talk all over the place to try and get energy out there for people to try it. But if I hadn't done that, it wouldn't have gone very far. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a long time to develop medical devices. <laughs> that, that's something that I... So now I'm teaching a course on the development of medical devices and tell the students, well, this, this is going to take time. It's going to take a lot of work. And you should do a very good analysis to make sure there's going to be a case uh, for this to be useful. Because so otherwise... Man, your students can take my wheelchair and sell it. <laughs> okay, I'll let them know. Sometimes it feels like maybe the timing is not uh, perfect for certain ideas. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, Christian Cipriani now with those magnets. And I think they've gone, I've, I've seen some very uh, interesting results. They have these tiny magnets and they're doing localization. And it's more for control of several degrees of freedom. And they're getting some interesting results. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Is he putting them in the muscle and then watching them yep. move in the muscle? Right, right. I'll, I'll, I'll send you some, some info. It's uh, some cool stuff. Sounds hard. I don't like hard stuff. It <laughs> can be very cool to record from nerves to control an arm, but it's just too hard, too hard for me. Little tiny electrodes stabbing into the nerve, hundreds of them to make it work. So I'm not that smart. So we cheated and did TMR. And use biology uh, as an amplifier. Use a muscle as an amplifier instead. And it always works. You don't have to refill it. No batteries involved as long as you eat your Cheerios in the morning. <laughs> right. And it heals when it's broken. Yeah, we're trying to address the problem in different fronts with surgical techniques and engineer neural interfaces. And we're doing some work trying to record signals directly from the nerves using extraneural electrodes. But as you said, you know, they're, they're very difficult. It's hard to know if they're going to be reliable when they're used in daily life. Do you remember when uh, when we met the first time? I was, uh, I think, doing my master thesis at the time. You visited Gothenburg, and we had a meeting, and I presented what I was planning to do on using OS integration and implanted electrodes. And I said, well, we can use electrodes in, in the nerves and muscles. What did I say? You said, oh, those electrodes in the nerve will never work. You, you can scrap that. But uh, Well, I tend to be a surly old scientist. <laughs> Sorry, folks. But... It's a brilliant, the EOPRA that Max is working with is a brilliant idea. That doesn't mean he's got it solved. You know, trying to get information out of nerves is very hard. Right. Even if you've got, what he's developed is a cool way of getting 
through the body. So, you know, he doesn't have wires coming out of the skin, which tend to get infected and break with time. So he's got a very cool way of getting access to inside the residual limb. That's brilliant. But now comes all the hard part of once you got it, what do you do with all those wires? Right. So we're mostly using muscular signals for control and the neural electrodes for sensory feedback. And I certainly think that it's a lot more reliable for daily life to use my electric signals than neural ones. And therefore, our interest on working with TMR and RPNIs and these new um, options. Where do you think is the future when it comes to artificial limbs? So it seems to me that the robotic part is more or less solved. I mean, they're very expensive, but the technology is, you know, is kind of there. Um, I still feel like the, the human-machine interface continues to be the, the bottom. Yeah, and the sensory is the harder part. And fortunately, people are very good at making up with other sensations. So none of our arms for the last thousand years has any sensation to speak of. But you can see your hand and what you're grabbing, which makes up for the fact that you can't feel. Now, it would be very nice to feel. And please understand that something's a lot more than nothing. So even if you have just one very consistent sensory percept in your hand that you're grabbing something, that's, that's useful because it's telling you you're successful in grabbing it and something is better than nothing. So I'm excited about Max EO Prison. want to play with them too. It's getting a little late in my career, but that's okay. Well, hopefully we can get those uh, grants to translate this work in the U.S., which, uh, I mean, we've done several cases in Sweden, but moving so, the technology into the U.S. is uh, challenging. But one other project we have is instead of the EOPRA system, we've developed these little capsules about the size of the metal part on the end of this pencil right. that you can put into the muscle and it radios out the signal. So these little capsules are, the it's I been mix. done before by uh, Richard Weir with a device he called IMEs. Right. And we made a different version that somehow has a stronger link. And I'm not a good enough engineer to describe it well. About the only way I think of it is it's auto tuning that makes it a little stronger. And we hope that these will work well in the muscles. So you don't have to have electrodes. The electrode on the residual limb is one of the hard parts because they tend to get, right. they tend to move or tear off. And if you have to wear a socket or even a sleeve to keep these electrodes on, that tends to be hot and uncomfortable. So if we could get to something like percutaneous attachment and either the EOPRA or, or little magic bullets that we put in the muscle, that would be nice because then you don't have to have all this crap on the patient. The more crap, the worse it is. Right. So that's ongoing work on animals, I assume, at the moment, these wireless electrodes. Yes. We, we did our first dog this year, this fall, and we're still looking at, what's her name? Ella. Ella's getting checked once a month. Okay. And we're, wait, we're hoping to get FDA approval to put them in humans before the fall. Exciting and stuff. So what will you, if there are, you know, if there are, I guess you still have students coming to you and asking about advices for uh, how do you get into the field and what are the promising directions in the field? What, what would you say? 
well, I have a lot of kids who want to become me. And I'm sorry, there's only one Todd Kuyken. <laughs> I've retired, so there is an opening to be me. Um, the hard part is prosthetics is a very small field. And research in prosthetics is even smaller. So there just aren't many jobs. So I encourage students to think a little broader and think of either robotics or computer, computer science in medical devices in general. So one of my master students went on and he's not doing artificial limbs, but he went to an orthopedics company and he's having fun helping them design implants, which is a fine job. And I got to tell you, orthopedic joint replacements is one of the best surgeries invented ever. It started right at, as I was a, a medical student and, you know, the first patients they kept in the hospital a month. And now it's almost day of surgery. And they, they don't save lives, but they surely improve the quality of life. You can go in with knees so painful you can't walk and you come out walking much less pain. That's a remarkable, remarkable surgery. It's all about pain and function. And it's, it's a beautiful thing if you can pay attention, not just to life and death, but quality of life. And they do a good job with that. Yeah, which is most of the times the motivation for the majority of the people that want to get into biomedical engineering or medical technologies. So keep an open mind and think broader about getting a job than just prosthetics. Now, if you want to get into prosthetics, one way to do it is become a prosthetist. And if you're an engineer and you have an engineering background and you get your master's in prosthetics, you can treat patients and be a prosthetist, which is a very fine job. And actually there's a shortage of them and it pays well. And you can use your engineering degree to be a better prosthetist or think of something new in the field. There are dozens of little gizmos in prosthetics that were made by one person and they made a little company to sell them with. I mean, dozens. And most of them are very clever. Mm. And the clever ones are the ones that do well and the ones that aren't clever go away. Right, right. Good. Is there uh, something else you would like to discuss or tell people? I think it's been a nice chat, Max. I do want to talk with you a little bit more when we're done with this. Sure. Okay, good. Then thank you very much for participating. You can subscribe to this podcast in any of your preferred platforms, that is Spotify, Audible, iTunes, or whatever it is that you use to listen to podcasts. And thanks to Dr. Enzo Mastino for the jingles.